0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. On Tuesday, Republican leaders promised to keep funding education. Incoming Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat says despite what he calls fear-mongering on social media, his party is committed to continue funding the teacher pay. And returning House Speaker Charles McCall says he and his caucus hope for more education
1: funding in the coming session, Neva, what do you think of this commitment? I think the commitment is understood on all parties uh, at the at the Capitol. It, education has always been the core issue that was addressed first and foremost. Uh, there, the the debate has been in in the uh, the funding aspect and how much and how do you get there. But I think the uh, the thing that Speaker McCall said in that particular setting uh, that I think is noteworthy is that he said. While uh, while education is a priority, an equal priority is going to be educational outcomes. And I think with that, what we're hearing is that uh, that there's uh, there's going to be some real significant looks at structural changes uh, to education and to be able to really see what the results are for the money that's being expended. So uh, I, I think this is part of the larger conversation that will be ongoing through this next legislative session. And I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that these legislative leaders are kind of teaching it up in this fashion
2: right well I mean it's <clears throat> and everybody please excuse me this week I've, I've lost my my voice it's coming back and Neve and, and I we've got the show where we normally don't shout at each other but that's especially not this week um, you know I, w- I would just say that it's you know we're, we're in December of 2018 know, trying to uh, forecast what the budget outcome is going to be for you know May of 2019 mm-hmm. is is reading tea leaves that that nobody can really understand right now or appreciate. You know, we, we do know some dynamics that we've got an incoming governor who has said that he would have vetoed the new revenue sources. So the idea of new revenue sources coming on the table seems to be kind of out of the question right now, unless he does a George H. W. Bush of no new taxes and changes his mind during this first term of his administration, which I don't really see happening. So every year at the Capitol is gonna be a battle for funding. Uh, education did get more than uh, they probably anticipated last year, but they're nowhere near where they need to be from a decade of decade plus of cuts to education. You have corrections that needs way more money than they're going to get, healthcare that needs way more money than it's gonna get. So every dollar at the State Capitol is gonna have a lot of interest fighting for it, and a lot of very compelling interest fighting for it. So you know, I would say, the commitments right now are encouraging, um, but you know, for people to be worried about where funding is ultimately are going to end up. I don't think that that's fear-mongering at all. I think it's just real concern over a limited amount of dollars for a lot of competing interests. I, I
1: think the point, though, with Governor-elect did th- to remember is that it was not just the approach of we wouldn't fund more dollars to education. It was how that would be funded. That was really his his whole uh, argument and discussion throughout the campaign was not about trying to make education uh, preeminent and, and 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 really the centerpiece of uh, Uh, of Oklahoma in terms of where dollars are expended and and the results are are uh, are garnered but it really is how do you get there and I think we will see some different approaches and some different dialogue in in that regard with the incoming Republican governor and with this new legislature and
0: at some point you have to focus on other forms of education Oklahoma Education Television Authority uh, which has been cut dramatically colleges universities which have gotten dramatic cuts over we spoke last week
2: about the unfunded endowment uh, positions at university Universities in the state of Oklahoma. There are a lot, and, and I, I know that Governor Stitt, Governor elect Stitt, has been saying that it's not a matter of not funding education. But during the campaign trial, whenever he's pre- when he was pressed on where does that money come from, he really didn't have an answer for that. And uh, you know, the the Democratic candidate Drew Edmondson, he wanted to raise taxes, in particular on oil and gas companies. So there was this path of new revenue. I just I think that if we're going to see more revenue go to education without new revenue on the table, it probably means that somebody else loses.
1: I think the other thing though, is when you talk about revenue, when you're starting with education, getting more than half of the state budget, more than half of the appropriated dollars at the outset. I mean, that's the discussion point to start from And And I think it's it's not that, that there's not more needed. It is how to best allocate that and what, uh, what type of results we should expect for those additional dollars that that are put on the table.
2: One, one quick way to put some money into the state budget without raising taxes right now would be to expand Medicaid. We do that. We put more money into uh, the Oklahoma Health Care Authority. That would free up a lot of money that could be spent anywhere else, including education. A
0: lot of things to talk about as the session gets nearer. Elected members of the GOP rushed to distance themselves from comments from the chair of the Republican Party of Canadian County. Andrew Lopez sent a letter to lawmakers urging, in essence, the defunding of education and saying his party is betraying its principles and looking to grow the size of government. Ryan, does this letter worry you?
2: No, it doesn't. It doesn't worry me at all. I I think that it does reflect a certain element of the Republican base. I think that there is an element of the Republican base that would just as soon get rid of uh, public education, but they're not the folks that have been prevailing in these primaries. And what we saw in the last primary season, where um, if, if you're really going to have races in the state of Oklahoma that are going to be uh, focused around a particular issue, it's really in primaries right now because I think whenever you get – into the general, and it's a Republican versus Democrat partisanship as is trumping issues, and and but in those primaries, Republican candidates that had stood up for education and wanted more funding for education, they either won re-election or they got elected, and folks that stood in the way got thrown out. And so I think that you know this is uh, represents some base. Now there is you know folks should pay attention to it. We shouldn't just immediately dismiss it because you know stuff like this you know ten years ago, whenever we first started hearing about. Uh, uh, Obama and the the Affordable Care Act and, you know, all of the stuff, you know, that is the kind of the fuel that leads to things like Breitbart and, you know, even President Donald Trump. So, you know, just because this is out there and it seems... Totally incredulous right now doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to it. And I'm glad that Republican leadership was quick to dismiss it.
0: And even a lot of uh, Republicans won on the idea of education, and were quick, including the Yukon representative, to dismiss what he had said.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Yukon representative uh, Rhonda Baker, a, a former classroom teacher herself, mm-hmm. now going to chair of the House Education Committee. I, I think Ryan is 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 correct in this assessment that when you start talking about comments made from folks that are involved in the political party structure. And organization. These are lay people who uh, who get together within the framework of both parties, get elected to positions that are unpaid, uh, basically volunteer positions uh, within their counties, and uh, and and I think oftentimes we see them uh, uh, be hyper partisan, be very uh, willing to kind of take uh, uh, sometimes positions on the extreme edges. I think both parties can can see that this has happened in recent years in in within their political political frameworks. And I think we have to keep it in context. I mean, it's a way for them to get a headline. It's a way for them to get some attention. uh, But at the end of the day, it really has very little to do other than give them their uh, proper voice within the framework of party organization structure to be able to advocate for the issues that they want to see those folks that go to the legislature perhaps uh, take into consideration.
0: Senate bills are already getting filed, and two familiar ones were announced late last week. Senate Bill 13 makes abortion a homicide. A similar bill failed to get a hearing last year, Senate Bill 12 let, lets anyone carry a gun, concealed or unconcealed, without a license. Now, Governor Fallon vetoed the bill earlier this year, but Governor-elect Kevin Stitt has signaled support for so-called constitutional carry. Neva, what do you think will happen to these bills?
1: I, You know, again, I think these are the types of bills that get a lot of attention early pre-session uh, in terms of speculation and conversation, but we'll have to just wait and see. I think, uh, I think what we saw last time uh, it, it, with the result in both of those instances may well be the case again. I mean, uh, uh, even with the change in the legislature, I think I think when you actually put a bill uh, through the process, I mean, the give and take and the the real structure to be able to vet these ideas and uh, to make sure that uh, that they have the proper hearing, rather than just kind of throw the throw the hand grenade, so to speak, and just kind of get it out there to uh, uh, have the conversation really stimulated. I, I I would assume that we'll see lots of these types of bills that'll be pre-filed. But uh, the question will be, will there be much focus and attention on those bills as opposed to the bigger issues that we talk about all the time, which really are the looming policy issues about how we are going to really uh, address some of these agencies that have long since been uh, uh, kind of uh, starved to death in terms of d- appropriated dollars and the need to see some real effective policy changes. Right.
2: Maybe the state senators should run for a county party chair out in Canadian County. I mean, it sounds a little... <laughs> A bit more in line with what we're seeing. I mean, th- these two bills would make Oklahomans dramatically less safe, and it would have an, a wildly negative impact on the Oklahoma, Oklahoma women's health care, which is already near the bottom in the country. Um, you know, with the, with the uh, anti choice legislation that Senator Silk continues to bring forward every year. Uh, you know, we can talk about his disregard for women and uh, their ability to make to have autonomy over this incredibly important choice for themselves and their bodies and what that means for their health care. Um, but I mean it's it's we've said it all before. The real test here is whether or not leadership lets this bill move forward. You know when it didn't get a hearing last year, that sent a signal that this you know this bill is dangerous. It goes way too far even for the Republican caucus and it doesn't deserve the light of day. Hopefully that will be the case again this year. With constitutional carry, let's stop calling it constitutional carry because if it were constitutional carry, we wouldn't need a statute to do it. You could just go carry mm. it. You know, the, the idea of putting more guns onto the streets, in particular in situations where people are uh, carrying them without any licensing or any training, is just, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We are a state right now that has so much Underdiagnosed and undertreated mental illness. And we put, when we throw in guns with that, I mean, just drive around in the streets right now and you, you look at road rage. I mean, the number of times you know, people you know, freak out and do things that they would never do in their normal life. Now you put a gun into that context uh, and it just makes it radically more dangerous. And so I, I really hope that, you know, Governor-elect Stitt, you know, I understand on a campaign, you're trying to get the NRA's endorsement. This is what he wants to do. I'm hoping that he checked that box but now that he's got the guts and he begins to hear from folks, in particular law enforcement, uh, it was OSBI and a lot mm-hmm. of law enforcement folks that stepped up and talked to Governor Fallon and said, this is dangerous. It makes our agents and our officers less safe and makes the people of Oklahoma less safe. And she listened. I hope Governor-elect will too. And
0: while these might, bills might not pass, Neva, they, the problem, well, I guess some people will say with these bills, is it gives a bad light on the national, So for people wanting to move here, people want, businesses wanting to move here. They see these bills and it makes them maybe think twice about it. Well, we so.
1: perhaps sensationalize some of these bills too, too prematurely. I think is a big part of this. Uh, I mean, th- if there are a thousand bills or whatever number of bills that are thrown into the hopper, I mean, we pick one or two that have a little bit of sizzle, and, and also, as as Ryan says, are ones that uh, I mean, historically have have had less traction. I mean, there there are, there are many many opportunities for lawmakers to put bills. Uh, into the into the process and frankly let's remember part of that process is to listen to constituents back home who want certain pieces of legislation who want certain ideas you know put forward in terms of uh, whether they can be promulgated as as statute or rules and so I think I think there's that give and take of everyone needs to have their voice heard and in some cases that means that a bill uh, finally makes its way into the and is filed and goes through some level of process uh, in the in in the legislature and I think that's a healthy give and take I think the the lawmakers at the end of the day get. To press the red or green button and decide whether this is really good public policy, good legislation for the vast majority of Oklahomans.
0: The state epidemiologist was forced to resign last year after more than 20 years with the department. It was later learned Christy Bradley, who resigned under protest, was one of the first to react to the agency's financial troubles last year. She notified the federal government about misspending of funds. A spokesperson says Bradley wasn't let go because of the financial mess. Ryan, what do you think about the ouster of Bradley?
2: Well, I think that it's it's a loss to lose somebody with that much institutional memory and, and history with the state of Oklahoma. That kind of public service and uh, intelligence about the way the department works, the way these these grant programs work. You know, we we talked last week about there's a piece of uh, legislation starting in the Senate to create greater oversight within the legislature oftentimes the best oversight that we have within these agencies are the folks that work there themselves these public servants that know these programs in and out uh it was the state's epidemiologist who saw that the ryan white uh funding was being misspent it was being applied to payroll instead of being used uh for aids care in the state of oklahoma and that was you know she was the one who noticed that you know and you know, that's so deep in the weeds in spending, whenever you're talking about uh, um, an, an agency that has tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars passing through it, you know, state and federal, to be able to find something like that. So to lose a public servant there, you know, we don't know what the circumstances are. Obviously, the, the state is saying that they can't comment because it's a personnel matter. Um, but it does, you know, regardless of the circumstances, and it, it does look, uh, you know, the, the optics are not great here uh, for anyone. But it does whenever you lose that intelligence in an agency, we've lost one of the best pieces of oversight that we've got over state government.
0: and what is the worst thing is when I read the story, neva it sounded like they had basically ousted a, a whistleblower, which has got to draw some concern
1: well, and I, I I think the the question is what what are the real facts? And we may not know based on the fact that uh, that this is a personnel matter. I do think it's it's important to note that uh, that the interim commission uh, commissioner Tom Bates did make the statement that he had conducted a thorough review of the supervisory conduct of, of the individuals that had uh, been asked for their resignation. So, I mean, there are some personnel elements to this that uh, that are certainly not for public uh, consumption and uh, may very well uh, really factor into this, even though the optics, as you say, given the fact that there's been a storyline already out there, given the fact that the, the, that the department has had the black eye uh, through the year with all all of the mismanagement and all of the the budget uh a crisis you know real or imagined as as it unfolded um, I think it's I think it is important in all of these agencies uh, to make sure particularly with this incoming transition changing of the guard that we begin to see that uh, uh, that there is a thorough review uh, of all of the folks that are in major management and supervisory positions and that uh, we know that they are really performing at the level that's expected and and properly uh, conducting themselves as well
0: well the so it's possible for the public to know is yeah. you know, the lawmakers could certainly delve into this because it's they can certainly even if it is a personal matter they can subpoena they can look into why this person would be fired
2: and you know and i think that they should be asking those questions because you know while there may be personal matters here that we're not privy to and you know could make for a very legitimate termination and we're just not aware of them. i mean sitting here in this in, in our recording booth we're just we're not we don't have all of those facts to right. make that determination. But we're also but, an
1: at-will state, and yeah. and I think yes. that's an important point that sometimes gets gets lost in many of these conversations when we start talking about personnel changes or personnel exits. I mean, uh, and I think well, we may see more of that as as time passes, and the the question will be. And you're right, the legislature definitely has a role in that. They can ask questions and they can be involved because of their you know oversight and 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 budget component in terms of the appropriating the money for these agencies but i th- i think this is kind of a headline chasing you know facts that we don't really know and uh, um and i think it will be interesting to see if more comes out in the days to come
2: any firing here in this context is going to be suspect i mean we're just because right. of of the nature of what we're talking about because I think it's the we, health department that went, right. went, had financial troubles the, like the real concern for the public here is whether or not the firing was because she was a whistleblower and if if she was fired because she was a whistleblower in an at-will state or not because we, we have to rely on these public servants within these agencies, these civil servants there, we should, we should need to protect them. And so if, if legislators feel like there's some whistleblower retribution here, they should definitely look into that. But, you know, I, I do think that it, it's impossible and, and not wise for folks to begin to project you know, what they think may have happened here onto this headline without, without further facts.
0: Finally, this week, the United States said goodbye to its 41st president, George H.W. Bush. I just wanted to get your thoughts on his passing. Neva, let's start with you.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, uh, I had the incredible privilege and opportunity in 1992 to serve as the state director of the Bush-Quell campaign and had, had the privilege of, of meeting the president on more than one occasion. And. Uh, And uh, he certainly, I think, as we've seen reflected in talking about his legacy, something he never wanted to talk about, uh, we saw really the uh, amazing uh, the amazing character of, of, of uh, President Bush. I mean, here's someone who, when you talk about him, you think of words like modesty and courtesy and and uh, restraint and respect and civility. And I mean, you can go on and on. And those were words that over and over again we heard uh, uttered from uh, from those who had been uh, on both sides of the political mm-hmm. aisle and, and who, in some instances, had been described as uh, political, uh, you know, certainly political opponents and some would say political enemies. But he really didn't have political enemies. He was someone who he was really a statesman. He was someone who uh, uh, I think is the best example of a true public servant and American hero that uh, that I've seen uh, in my lifetime next to Ronald Reagan. And uh, so uh, my uh, heartfelt condolences go out to the Bush family. And I think it's uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful reflection to see that and remind us that uh, as oftentimes he said to whom much is given, much is required. And I think he uh, stepped up and his life of public service demonstrated that fully.
0: Uh, his work to bipartisan mm-hmm. uh, as far as ADA, passage yeah. of that and passage of NAFTA, or not passage of NAFTA, working on NAFTA eventually got passed during the Clinton administration, but really showed that you can work across both to be president aisle.
2: during the fall of uh, the Soviet Union yeah. and you know, the uh, the beginnings of the end of the Cold War. I mean, you know what a what a remarkable point in history. And you know, there it, we're reviewing his legacy this week. You know, President uh, George H. W. Bush is some you know the first president that I ever got to meet. I, I remember you know now Niva, uh I the first campaign that I was ever engaged in. Uh, now I was all of eight years old, I uh, but I was, but I was, uh, I was a strong Michael Young Dukakis man. fan. I, I drew all sorts of Michael Dukakis <laughs> posters for, uh, for my room, and um, you know I, I didn't. I, didn't necessarily know why, but I did. Um, you know, and I think that you know there is this legacy of the Bush campaign that's troubling. Everything from the Willie Horton ads of the eighty-eight campaign to the the fabricated crack cocaine drug scare that they did, where they uh, set up DE agents to make a fake buy in a park across the street from the White House. But you know those things are still playing out today. But I think the more important thing that's playing out today is President Bush's respect for democratic institutions and democratic norms, his humility and his grace. Uh, in particular in the face of defeat, political defeat, the greatest political defeat that anyone can experience in the modern era is to lose the presidency after their first term. And the letter and the words of wisdom that he left for President Clinton in that letter in his desk, that handwritten letter that President Clinton found uh, in in the desk in the Oval Office whenever he arrived after being sworn in as president, um, I, I think is something that, as a nation, stands in stark contrast to what we see today. And when we looked at those presidents sitting at the funeral uh, earlier this week, you know, Republicans and Democrats sitting at that funeral this week, um, there was, a, I think, a stark contrast with the way that the way that they respected democratic institutions and norms that were very much embodied in the, the work of President Bush that's missing today in America's
1: politics. And I think President Bush, his own life code, I mean, was a very simple, very simple few sentences, but I think it's something really, I would say, anyone looking at public service or anyone in elective or public office today should be reminded of often. And it was simply to tell the truth, don't blame people, be strong, do your best, try hard forgive stay the course i mean if that doesn't uh, summarize uh, what uh, what i think all americans appreciate about the life and and legacy of george h w bush as well as what we want to see in leaders uh, in our nation now and and uh, in the decades to come
2: here here and and to the greatest generation uh, bob dole 95 years old, standing uh, oh. to salute the, the, the casket and the rotunda of the United States <laughs> Congress. I mean, a, a, an amazing moment. Yeah. And, and this, this really is, you know, we're, we're beginning to see the, the loss of this generation, everybody from John mm-hmm. McCain to, uh, to President Bush. And it's, it's not just the, the, the passage of a generation, but I think that it's reminding America of what we, what we can be when we stand at our greatest.
0: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.